Hello, everybody. Welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode, we go south, really far south, to Australia, but not to the hot and dusty outback. Instead, we go to a wet, windy, wild, unpredictable frontier even further south. We travel through mountains, grassy plateaus, forests, passes, and bogs. We stay in rustic backcountry huts or pitch a tent nearby where you can commiserate with fellow travelers about the weather and poisonous snakes. On this trek, you might even get a glimpse of some of the unique wildlife, like the platypus, or better yet, the Tasmanian devil. Yep, we're going to the island of Tasmania. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Overland Track in Cradle Mountain, Lake St. Clair National Park in Tasmania, Australia. On this episode of the show, our guest is Dan Caney. I am really excited to have Dan on the show because Dan is our first listener guest. I was planning an episode on the Overland Track, doing the research, and coincidentally, Dan reached out to suggest that I do an episode on the hike and said that he had hiked the Overland Track in 2016. So I invited Dan to come on the show to talk about his hike. Dan is originally from Australia, which is pretty cool. But he grew up in Papua New Guinea, which is even cooler, I think. And we talk about that in the interview. Before we talk with Dan, let's talk a little bit about Tasmania and the Overland Track. Australia, as I'm sure you know, is famous for having been founded by convicts. And in Tasmania, this was especially so. Over 70,000 men, women, and children were sent to Tasmania in the early 1800s. About 40% of all the convicts the British sent to Australia. Port Arthur is the most famous penal settlement in Tasmania. Sarah Island and Macquarie Harbor in the western part of Tasmania is one convict site you can also visit. Let's talk about one story related to Sarah Island. In the early 19th century, Irishman Alexander Pierce was sent to Australia for stealing six pairs of shoes. He ended up in Sarah Island Prison in the remote wilderness of Tasmania. Sarah Island had a brutal reputation of cruelty toward its inmates. And maybe because of that, or maybe because he didn't like being locked up. In 1822, Pierce, along with seven other convicts, escaped from Sarah Island Prison. But they got lost in the bush, and they didn't have any food. Eventually, one by one, they turned on each other resorting to cannibalism to survive. Three months later, Pierce turned up in a settlement all the way on the opposite side of Tasmania. He was apprehended and he admitted to the cannibalism, reportedly saying, no man knows what hunger will make him do. But the authorities didn't believe his story. He was sent back to Sarah Island Prison. But shortly after that, he then escaped again this time with only one other convict along with him. Once he got out into the bush, he killed the other convict, 
ate him, and then gave himself up to the authorities. This time, the authorities found what was left of the man he had eaten, and Pierce was convicted of murder and then hung. I thought that kind of gothic story would give you a little colorful view of the convict history of Tasmania. But now let's talk about Tasmania itself. Tasmania is an island 150 miles, or about 240 kilometers, off the south coast of Australia, and is separated from Australia by the Bass Strait. The main island of Tasmania is about 65,000 square kilometers, or about 25,000 square miles in size. It's thought that the island was connected to the mainland until the end of the last ice age, more than 11,000 years ago, when the sea rise created the Bass Strait. At the time Europeans arrived in Tasmania, there was a population of several thousand Aborigines who had been there for thousands of years. At the time Europeans arrived, there were about nine separate groups or distinct small nations on the island. The first European to discover Tasmania was Dutch explorer Abel Tasman in 1642, uh, though he called it Van Diemen's Land after a patron. Later, in 1856, it became named after him. And as we said, it was essentially a penal colony for the British. And in the early 19th century, convicts started arriving. That eventually precipitated the Black War in the 1820s which played a big part in diminishing what was left of the Aboriginal population to only a few hundred people. The Black War was triggered in part um, by Aboriginal discontent with the largely male European population of settlers abducting Aboriginal women. Modern Tasmania has a little over half a million residents. Almost half of them live in and around Hobart, the capital And more than 40% of the island today is protected space. And much of the island is still densely forested. I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about Tasmania's most famous residence, which is the Tasmanian Devil. The Tasmanian Devil is a carnivorous marsupial the size of a small dog. Today, it's the largest carnivorous marsupial in the world. The Tasmanian Devil is a really stocky and muscular animal with black fur, often with a little tiny white around the neck. Uh, They reportedly smell pretty bad, and they make a loud and disturbing screech. The devils hunt and scavenge. Uh, They hunt at night and at dusk and dawn. Although they look kind of portly and stocky, they are much faster than they look. They can climb trees, and they can swim across rivers. Typically, they are a solitary animal, but They're also notorious for communal feeding frenzies, sometimes when they find, for example, a large carrion. Uh, Don't get bitten by one of these things. For their size, they have the strongest bite of any predatory land mammal. The devils have been protected since 1941, but recently have become endangered due to a disease called devil facial tumor disease, which is really bizarre to me because this is actually a cancer but it's a cancer that is transmissible. And it seems to be their feeding habits that I described, which includes sort of a frenzy around a common carrion, for example, that they might be eating, 
um, sometimes they end up biting each other when they're doing that. And that seems to be responsible for spreading this cancer. So we've got Tasmanian devils in this area. The area that we're going to be talking about on this episode is the Tasmanian Wilderness World Heritage Area, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Area designated in 1982. It's about one and a half million hectares, or one-fifth of all of Tasmania in size. There are a number of national parks within this UNESCO World Heritage Area, and Cradle Mountain Lake St. Clair National Park is the location for the Overland Track. Cradle Mountain National Park is a land of rainforests and river gorges, snow-covered mountains, alpine moorlands, and glacial lakes. Cradle Mountain itself and Dove Lake are highlights of the park, uh, though they are often covered in fog, which I can attest to. At the time of my research, I looked at the Cradle Mountain webcam and it was completely covered in fog. The Cradle Mountain area has been protected since 1922. The Lake St. Clair part of the, the park has a deep glacial lake, Lake St. Clair, which is up to 167 meters deep or about 550 feet deep. And as Dan points out in the interview, that is the deepest lake in Australia. The Overland Track itself is a route that seems to have been in existence even during Aboriginal times. There have been findings of artifacts and campsites that Aborigines built uh, before white settlers were in the area. But the modern trail was blazed by a fur trapper named Burton Nichols in 1931. It's been officially called the Overland Track since 1937. Today, it's managed by the Tasmanian Parks and Wildlife Service, and it's been managed by them since 1971. And that has brought significant upgrades and, and better maintenance to the trail and ultimately a lot more people. Each year, thousands of people hike the trail. With that, let's go to my conversation with Dan Caney about the Overland Track. Dan Caney, welcome to Trails Worth Hiking. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So I have to tell you, Dan, you are my first listener guest. So you have the privilege of being the first listener to actually come on the show also as a guest. What do you think of that? I think that's great. I hope I uh, pass the test. <laughs> I'm sure you will. We're going to be talking today about the Overland Track, a trail that is in Tasmania, which is part of Australia. And although you live in the United States now, you are originally from Australia, right? I, uh, yes, I was uh, born in Australia, I guess, quite a while ago in the 70s. Actually, my parents were missionaries in Papua New Guinea. So I grew up in New Guinea, Papua New Guinea. I uh, went to boarding school in Australia and then college, graduate school, got married, and my wife is a college professor. That brought you to the United States eventually? Yes. Yeah, she wanted to be a professor and I really didn't care. So uh, she got a job in the late 90s in a college in Iowa. So it's like, let's go. <laughs> and now you're you're in Massachusetts, right? That's correct. So in around 2005... We both moved to Western Massachusetts for our jobs. So I think it's really interesting that you grew up in Papua New Guinea. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. I mean, how does that figure into your sort of story of being interested in the outdoors? 
Well, I, I guess it's foundational. I mean, my parents really lived in, well, I as well with them, lived in some really remote locations where, you know, the boat would come once a month with supplies. So there was no real, there was no television. There was nothing. You just ran around outside, and it was a great time. I had a blast. As I got older, we moved up into the highlands of Papua New Guinea, basically the central part, and we lived around 6,000 feet. And the great thing about the highlands is there's no snakes. Ah. <laughs> it's too cold. Is that a problem in the rest of the country? Well, they, they do. I guess, like Australia, everything was, in the Ice Age, everything was um, connected to, you know, to this one landmass. So there's venomous snakes that are common to both Australia and Papua New Guinea. So then in 2005, you come all the way to Iowa, but it sounds like that was also somewhat formative in your outdoor experience too, because you got into geocaching at that point, right? Yes. Well, well the first thing I learned about coming to Iowa, we came to Iowa in December. And, <laughs> and let me tell you, as an Australian, you don't know about cold. And like within the first week of coming to Iowa, we had minus 40 Fahrenheit. So we learned cold. But I guess in around 2002... The U.S. government opened up or promised not to shut down the GPS signals on the satellite. So me, I'm a techie. I bought a cheap Garmin GPS. And then uh, I had to do something with it. Otherwise, my wife would have said, why did you buy it? (laughs) I mean, it's still going strong. It's geocaching. And if, if you don't know what it is, people publish a coordinate, a latitude and longitude on a web page on geocaching.com, and you kind of visit these things, and they put them all over the place. And a lot of them in Iowa, in parks and farmland and stuff, well, that was fine, but then I got the bug of what's around the next bend, what's over the next hill, and yes, there are hills in Iowa. And uh, pretty soon I was back into hiking. Yeah, so geocaching is something that my kids did when they were young and really enjoyed, and it was a way to really get them interested in some outdoor activities, and and you're right. Once you do that a little while, you start thinking, well, I don't have to just go to these geocaches where I find these little treasures, so to speak, but I can maybe find a trail that goes to a lake or that goes to the top of a mountain or something like that. And I do think it's a good gateway for people to get interested in pushing a little further. I certainly got to see the whole of Iowa. You know, if, if, you, if you just lived in a college town, you stay in the college town and drive on the interstate, basically. Iowa has 99 counties. I went to every single one of them. That's amazing. I've heard, like you said, you said there's actually are hills in Iowa. And, you know, I think it's, um, oh, I'm forgetting the name of the guy who's from Iowa, who's a famous writer. Bill Bryson. Bill Bryson. Thank you. Yeah. And he talked a lot about how beautiful Iowa was. And I think that for people who are from a more mountainous region or a coastal region, they might not think of it that way. But, you know, I, I think I agree with him and with you and to some extent that anywhere you go, there's something interesting to see. It's just a matter of looking. I think that's true across the whole world, and unfortunately, I have a mortgage to pay, otherwise I'd spend my whole life traveling. Yeah, me too. So how did you find out ultimately about the Overland Track? And how did, I mean, I guess you're from Australia, so it's probably known to you, but how did you get to a point where you were really thinking seriously about doing it? In the early 90s, when I married my wife, we were in graduate college, graduate school in Australia, and we, our honeymoon was to basically circumnavigate Tasmania in a car. I guess the Southern Hemisphere version of, you know, circumnavigating Iceland or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and my wife is a, is a day hiker, 
but she will not set foot in a tent or anything longer. You know, any, past sundown, she needs to be home kind of thing. You couldn't convince her that the, the huts were good enough? Uh, no. I, I can't <laughs> even convince her to go to some of the European huts. Oh, yeah, that's trouble, because some of those are pretty nice. And that, they are like almost five-star luxury hotels, some of them. With fantastic food, too. Yes. So I, I saw it as a honeymoon thing, and we, we did a day hike around Cradle Mountain National Park and stuff. So it was always in my mind that I'd like to go back. And then the other thing that kind of drew me back, or I took the opportunity, I have elderly parents in Victoria, Melbourne, Australia, and I kind of feel the the need to visit them yearly, and that's a long it's a long flight. So I've been trying to do little side trips. What have I, I've climbed Mount Fuji. Um, what else have I done? Uh, you know those kind of side trip things. And uh, in 2016, the side trip was let's go to Tasmania and spend uh, eight days hiking the Overland Track. And you did this as a solo trip, right? Yeah. So uh, it's not that I hate people or anything like that. I, I just don't have friends that are crazy like me that want to fly halfway around the world and carry your food for seven days or whatever and, and take whatever nature throws at you. So you had seen Tasmania with your wife before that, and you went back to it in 2016. What was it that drew you to Tasmania as someone from the Australian mainland? Australians know Tasmania exists. It's, I guess it's a bit like Alaska to the continental United States. It, it takes effort to get there because you just can't hop in your car and drive across. So <laughs> I, I guess as poor college students, it was cheap. <laughs> That was probably the biggest drawer. I don't remember that, but but it is a very, very nice place. It has a it has a moderate climate. It also has a lot of history. So it was first discovered in in the eighteen in the sixteen hundreds by a Dutchman called Abel Tasman, and he originally called the island Van Diemen's Land. That was his uh, I guess his trip sponsor. Yeah, so you know it has a long history. Um, of course, the the native Aboriginal people had been in Australia and Tasmania for 40,000, 50,000 years. And then in the 1800s, the, the British decided to basically turn it into a prison. They transported some 50,000 convicts to various locations in Tasmania. And there's some very famous, well-preserved prisons, basically. And one of them is Port Arthur, just outside of Hobart. So I've always known about this place. So let's let's go see it. And so we're in deep, deep southern hemisphere here. So we're talking about if you're going to go to Tasmania, it's really got to be in the northern winter, southern summer, right? Correct. So Tasmania, well, the start of the, the overland track trailhead is about 42 degrees south. So you're in the there's a band I don't know, 10 degrees wide or whatever, called the Roaring Forties, and there's strong winds and inclement weather, and it's it's a moderate temperature. I mean, I think the when I was there in December, and I, I'll talk Fahrenheit, even though Australians talk Celsius, the daily temperatures were like 40 to 60 on average. It's also a very, very wet location. It has like 120 or 110, 120 inches of rain a year. 
So you've got cold and wet and windy. That sounds like a recipe for hypothermia. Well, in fact, I, I want to stress with this hike, the danger is not the snakes or anything else. The danger is hypothermia. I guess part of the attraction is really the adventure of a hike that really is fairly wild. Old-time visitors were going there, even in the 1920s. And it's, it's on the edge, basically the bottom left quadrant of Tasmania is pristine, untouched wilderness. And in the 1980s, there was a huge environmental fight to block the extension of hydropower, dam, creation of dams. And that's meant that this whole big section of Tasmania is wild. I mean, there's places I don't think anyone's ever set foot on. And is this the Overland Track right in the heart of that, or is it sort of on the edge of that kind of thing? It's on the on the north on the northeastern edge of that. Okay, but it, it's still wild. I mean, I think the last you you go about in the middle of the hike, you go through a a pretty wide open grassy valley, and that's where the Pelion Hut is. And I mm-hmm. believe. In the early 1900s, they did graze cattle there, and some crazy guy in the 1800s, I think, tried to build a railway to the west coast of Tasmania through there. But there's no evidence of any of that anymore. And so even in the middle of what is the Southern Hemisphere summer, you can get not just rain, but you can actually get snow there, right? (laughs) It's kind of interesting. So I told you I learned about the cold in Iowa. One of the nights... On the, the second night on this trip, we actually got about two inches of snow. It's like what I would call here in New England, like the early winter, late fall snow, where it, w- it will melt within by noontime kind of thing. It was certainly eye-opening to a lot of the other people on the trail because they didn't expect that could happen. I can imagine. So for this trail, we're talking about 65 kilometers total, right? About 40 miles, which doesn't sound like a ton, but I think with these kind of conditions that we're talking about, it can be still fairly challenging. And most people are doing this trail in about six days. Is that right? Yeah. So if you go hut to hut, I think there are six huts. I am not a speed guy, but I think the record is like seven hours and 25 minutes. There's an ultra marathon or something through this place. I will not be a competitor. Trust me on that one. (laughs) me neither to break it down some of the days are 10 mile days other days are three or four and so there's plenty of time you don't have to rush there's buffer space in there in case the weather is inclement or bad and there's side trips that you can do so so take it easy take your time enjoy the place It's, it's not a race how's the up and down Well, I don't know if if you should trust me because I'm really pretty bad at up and downs unless it's, you know, 5,000 or above feet. But there are two days where you climb about 1,000 feet. It's not a a steep gradient. That's over a couple of miles, like three miles. So I didn't find it difficult. I'm an overweight middle-aged guy that's reasonably fit, and I, I thought it was fine. Okay. It's mostly on a plateau, it seems like, from the geography of it. Yes, and the, the, the trail is very well maintained. So some of the trail sections where they go through like a boggy area or whatever, they put down duckboard. Do you know what that is? Kind of like a boardwalk over the marshy areas? Yeah, so there's there's like, I'm making a number up. I don't remember what it is, but there's there's probably a third of the trail that's duckboard. 
That tells you how wet it can be, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't expect dry feet in certain places. But it also means, I mean, duckboard, you can set yourself into cruise mode and just just go. You know, there's no stepping on rocks or tripping over roots or anything. It's a smooth ride. What about gear for this trip? Are there particular things that you would do different than on other kinds of typical backpacking trips? In terms of gear, not really. Um... So it's not going to get freezing cold. I mean, it'll get down to 20 Fahrenheit. So you don't have to bring the, you know, the the hugely thick down stuff. I did have a puff jacket. And, and layers are your key. I mean, layers are the key everywhere. You must have, you know, must have a hard shell that's windproof. And it should be waterproof. The other things I would suggest, you know, you must have good gloves and a good thermal headgear. You you want to keep your head warm when it gets cold. And the other thing I would say that I took is I took a PLB, you know, one of those satellite located devices. This is out there, you know, who's going to come and get you? Who are you going to call? There's no cell phone out there. Is there really no way out except if you can if you get a PLB and you hit the button, are you basically calling for a chopper? Yes. So make sure you get that evacuation insurance or whatever it is. Now, it, it's unlikely that you'll need it, but you do see that each of the huts do have a, a designated helicopter landing area. They also use the helicopter to clean out the, uh, the pit toilets every year. So there's a lot of infrastructure that the Park Service uses to make, a, make this a low-impact height for the number of people going through it. It's funny that you mentioned using the helicopters for the pit toilets. They used to do that here in California on Mount Whitney. Mm -hmm. But they eventually just got rid of the pit toilets because it was too expensive to keep flying the helicopter in for that. And now they just give you like a basically a kitty litter bag that you have to carry your own waste out. Not a better option in my book, but you know. Mount Whitney is on my hit list, so one day I'll find out. (laughs) So there are huts along the way you've mentioned that are pretty much evenly spaced apart or spaced in a way that makes sense for going day to day. But there's no guarantee that you're going to get a spot in a hut, right? Like, so you, do you still need to bring a tent? So I, I brought a tent primarily as a safety precaution. You know, let, let's say uh, the weather is really bad and I, I need shelter. I brought basically a three-season, two-man lightweight tent. The second day was basically torrential rain all day. It was a very short day. That night, People just slept everywhere in the hut. So the huts generally have a communal kitchen and then bunk beds, you know, in like the second half of the hut. Well, the morning I got up, there were people all over the place. You could barely step without stepping on somebody. And so, you know, if the weather gets bad, you just have to put up with it. So your options are squeeze into a crummy spot in the hut or make sure you have a tent. Yeah, when I was when I was doing the hike, there was a <laughs> uh, there was a young couple. I'm sorry, I don't remember the woman's name, but Emil was the guy. They were from Brisbane, so the Queensland is a hot hot state. It's like our version of Florida, and they had just gotten married, and this was their honeymoon, <laughs> and they insisted on sleeping in a tent every night, and I kind of shadowed them down and, and then when at the end when we get to the to civilization again i think they were saying well we'll never do that again because of the bad weather throughout the night or i mean i think a tent's not not a bad option usually i i think they had a great time it's just they didn't realize what they were stepping into probably yeah yeah 
I could see, you know, in, in great weather, I would want to be outside without my fly on, over the tent, having the open air. What about navigation on this trip? It seems like it's a pretty well-established route, so I'd imagine it's not terribly difficult to get from one hut to the next hut from day to day. You shouldn't get lost on this trail. There are, I mean, it's it's a well-signed, well-obvious trail. You know, you, you won't miss it. I guess you could go wrong if you made... There's a few places where you can go to side trips. And the side trips are always out and back. They're not loops or anything else. But this is the world I'm sure some people do get lost somehow. There's a book that sounds like it's a fairly helpful one to, to maybe for preparation and also for bringing with you on the trail, right? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to give a great shout out. I've never met them. I don't know them. But John and Monica Chapman have written the best book about this. It's, I think it's just called The Overland Track. You buy it, they, they self-publish it, so they're not making money, they're not making, you know, they're not getting rich off this, at least I don't think they are. You can actually email John, I had a conversation with him when I was buying his book. I would recommend, one of the options when you're buying the book from him is that you can buy a plastic cover. I actually took the book on the on the hike with me, and that plastic cover kind of kept everything clean and dry. So I recommend that. But use that book. That book's got great maps, great times, distances, everything. I found the timings were pretty good. Some people have said they're a little fast, but I was fine with them. As far as you mean the estimates between of time to get from one place to another? Yes. And there's a map that sounds like it's called the TAS map or something that maybe covers this area, but it sounds like with that book, you probably really don't need the map or it's going to be an extra safety precaution. I brought the map, and I bought it. So I did the hike in December 2016. I still don't think to this day I've even opened the map. <laughs> I, I I took it with me, but, I, I mean, really, the book is more than enough. The book has each section, each day section, has, I think it's a 1 to 50,000 scale kind of map in one page. And it's it's decently wide, so you'll see everything you need to see. It's got everything you need in there, so... How do you get to Tasmania? Well, first of all, you got to get to Australia. (laughs) (laughs) And unfortunately, in the COVID times right now, that's not possible. They basically locked Australia down. But when COVID finishes and you go, most international visitors to Australia will fly into Sydney. Aside from the the hut and the the Tasmania, the, the primary three tourist destinations in Australia is Sydney, Ayers Rock, which is in the central central Australia, which is that big monolith, mm-hmm. and then the Great Barrier Reef in Cairns. So you can fly to, to Tasmania. So there's basically three entry points in Tasmania, three cities from biggest to smallest. It's Hobart in the south, uh, Launceston in the northeast, and Davenport in the northwest. You can fly to Launceston or Hobart from basically any major Australian city on three or four different airlines. What do you recommend, or is it basically just find the cheapest flight and go? Well, I think what it will actually boil down to is you'll find that there's no public transport to either trailhead, and it will depend on your, you know, you'll have to basically organize some form of transport. So it'll depend on what fits you for that to where you should fly into. I flew into Launceston because I used a company in Launceston called Outdoor Tasmania to drop me off at the trailhead and pick me up. I have no no business relationship with them other than that I'm a happy customer. They didn't abandon me. Kind of thing. <laughs> and they, got, they got me there safely and they, they were at the end at the right time. So I flew from Melbourne to Launceston and 
it's an hour flight at most on a what is a Dash 8 Q400 or something with Qantas is how I flew. You can get flights for $100. You know, it's not an expensive thing. And then it's a couple hour drive from Launceston to to the trailhead at Cradle Mountain. Everything seems to be about two and a half hours from everything else. So Launceston and Davenport are two and a, in the north. Those two cities in the north are two and a half hours from the basically the trailhead at the northern side, Cradle Mountain. Hobart is a little further. And most people do this trail from north to south, right? Is that the way it's easiest to do? That's the lore. Um, I think between October and May or June. When you have to have a permit, you must walk north to south. You don't have a choice. Okay. When you get out to the trailhead, do you start walking that day, or are there accommodations the night before to get situated before you start your trip? So at both ends of the hike, there's all there's all range of accommodation from pitch your own tent to five-star luxury lodges. And... There's food and, you know, there's everything there that you might that might need. I actually drove in from Launceston. I think we left Launceston about 7 in the morning. I got to the National Park sort of headquarters around 10.30. I think it was on the trail by 11.30. Okay, so you could actually start the same day if you yes. came from Launceston. Okay. And... Permits are not super cheap. They seem to be fairly expensive for this trip, at least compared to the permits I'm used to getting here in the United States. I, I guess price is all relative. Current price, I believe, is 200 Australian dollars, which I think is maybe around 150 American dollars right now. And are they hard to get? Do they fill up? Ah, uh, they do. I believe the system is from October to, let's say, May 31st. They only let 60 people a day onto the trail. Of those 60, I think only 34 are for backpackers. There's space for school groups, and there's also a, if you really want, there's a luxury option for this hike, and it costs about 4000 Australian dollars. It's the same hike, but you just stay, it's a guided hike, and you stay in fancy accommodation, and they promise you wine and hot showers every night. Okay. Which isn't for me. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> I'm out there to, to enjoy myself, to enjoy nature and not, not live luxury. But that's an option if you want that. And so let's say you're someone that's come all the way from the United States. You've flown all the way to Australia. You spent some time in Sydney. And then you've come to Tasmania and you, you do the hike. Uh, but, you know, you've, you're not going to get back to this part of the world. Maybe never and maybe not for a long time. Are there other things that are really worth seeing when you're in Tasmania that you should do if you're coming quite a distance to get there? Yeah, so the I think I, I mentioned it earlier. The the Port Arthur convict settlement, you know, the, the restoration of that, that's that's a I, I don't know if it's world heritage or not, but that's immensely beautiful. That's probably two hours east of Hobart. That's easy to get to. If you're into hiking, I mean, this wilderness area in southwestern Tasmania, there's all sorts of hikes. There's a particular one that a lot of people do is called the South Coast Hike. And that's primarily walking almost on the beach. And I think, from what talking to people that have done it, you have to take an aeroplane to get to the, to the starting point. An aeroplane or a boat, I believe, is the options. Kind of sounds a lot like Alaska, where they drop you into a remote spot and you go from there. Uh-huh. So it's T- Tasmania has, it's an adventure playground. You can do whatever you want. It, the only thing you're fighting is the weather. 
And so we've been talking a lot about the, the tough weather and the conditions and how hard they can be, but people are still coming from long distances and people like you are still going to, to hike this trail. So maybe you could talk to listeners a little bit about what makes this tra trail so appealing? Like what's, what does the terrain look like? Why is it really worth coming to see? Well, first of all, I, I guess it's it's a world-famous hike, so maybe there's some PR marketing involved in that. It's in a wilderness heritage area, so there's basically no development for the last 100 years in this location. It's totally wild. It has unique flora and fauna. It's also, I, I guess, that I'm not a geologist, but I think the landscape's basically been shaped by the last ice age, the last glaciers. And so... There's beautiful mountains that you and to me one of the attractions that I really didn't get to do very much of is take side trips and you can go to the summit and they're not that that basically rock scrambles to the summit. You've mentioned the side trips a few times, which makes me think that really is something worth doing. And I think in looking at some of the websites that talk about this hike, that was emphasized. Are there ones that like if you went back, are there a few that you've got on your list or a couple that you think are really worth probably worth doing from what you've heard? It seems like that could be a big part of this trip. I'd love to do all of the mountains. I guess the side trips fall into three categories. Small lakes, I, I guess here in Massachusetts, we'd almost call them ponds, waterfalls, and then some mountain summits. And you are walking, so the, the, I guess the average elevation for this hike is around 1,000 meters. So what's that? Let's say 3,300 feet. The summits of these mountains are only... And no more than 2,000 feet extra climb. So it's not like you're climbing Mount Whitney and, it's, and you're sitting at the bottom and it's, what, six, seven, eight thousand feet to go kind of thing. And the side trips are all reasonable. You know, I think the longest one might be four or five hours return. So you could make a half day of it here or there. Yeah. So, I mean, it didn't happen for me f at the beginning on the main, on the first sort of half of this hike because of the weather. But the first day, there's two side trips climbing... <laughs> I just love sitting on the top of mountains looking at the landscape. You can't buy that view, right? That's that's special. The one question that I have to ask that people like me who grew up around the same time, it sounds like that you grew up, who grew up watching American cartoons have to know is, did you see a Tasmanian devil? I did not. But I, do, I have met them in my past life, certainly on my honeymoon. <laughs> There's a story. I, I really don't know whether it's true or not. I could believe it's true. So Tasmanian devils are carnivorous animals. They're like vultures. They'll pick up carrion. I guess they tell you with a smile on their face, don't leave the trail because we'll never find you. <laughs> that, they'll never find you, but they'll never find your body either because the devils will eat you. Bones and all. Maybe it's a good thing that you didn't find any then. <laughs> if you want to do this hike and be really famous, there's an animal called a Tasmanian tiger. Now, don't worry, it's not a tiger. It's a marsupial like a dog, a carnivorous marsupial. I think its Latin name is thylacine. And it was basically hunted to extinction in the early 1930s. And nobody's seen one since. But you could almost believe, looking at some of this wilderness, that no one's ever been in, that maybe there is one out there. So if you happen to see one, get a photo, and you would be a very, very famous person. It's kind of like trying to find Bigfoot. Yes, but I don't know if Bigfoot's <laughs> real or not. <laughs> That's true. This was an actual real animal for sure. It just may not exist any longer. That mm -hmm. is a significant difference. 
You've also mentioned snakes a couple times, I think. And you've said that in, I guess, in all of this region, Australia and Tasmania and Papua New Guinea, all of the snakes are poisonous, right? Not all of them, but generally always assume they're poisonous. Well, in, in Australia in general, the only way you get bitten by a snake is three things. One, you try and catch one. Two, you try and kill one. Or three, you accidentally step on one. Yeah, I think that's the same here. <laughs> now, I don't want to scare people. I think I was trying to find when was the last death from a snake bite on the Overland Trek? And it was 1948. Okay. That's good to know. This isn't like you're going to be fighting these things off. Let them be, and you, you'll be fine. The snake that's you'll generally see in Tasmania is kind of a charcoal gray to a black. It's, it's actually called a tiger snake. On the mainland of Australia, they actually do have stripes. Not orange stripes, but they are stripy. In Tasmania, they've evolved to not have that. Just let okay. them be. I actually did not see one the whole trail. Now, that doesn't mean they're not there. It probably means that I just didn't see them or step on them. Yeah, well, that's a good thing. They keep their distance if they can. I'm sure they don't want mm -hmm. to mess with us if they can help it. Yes, they're not aggressive. I was coming home from one of the I did a side trip at the end of the, the trip the last, second last day and as I was coming home it's kind of not dusk but in the dense forest it's dark and I saw what I thought was a tail move at the bottom near my foot my left foot as I was walking now I didn't go back and look I didn't you know it, it's just kind of out of the corner of your eye so who knows what it was better to keep moving mm-hmm and for the tree life there, it seems like the, the gum tree, which in the States we call eucalyptus, is a, also very prevalent, not just on the mainland Australia, but also in Tasmania. Yes, I, I think they, they colonized Australia pretty much all over the place. Is that what most of the tree life looks like there? Pretty much eucalyptus trees? Uh, it depends. I mean, eucalyptus trees really don't, they're not dense forest kind of trees. They're open canopy, open space kind of trees. There are places where you do get dense foliage, and they're kind of pine trees or birch trees, I think. I'm certainly not an expert. To me, a tree looks like a tree, but I can tell a gum tree. <laughs> so maybe now would be good to talk a little bit about the itinerary that you had for this trip and, and how the trip unfolded. Okay. So let's start on the first day. You're starting at, is it Ronnie Creek where you start? So you actually really start at the National Park headquarters, and you have to pick up, it's like a laminated card, it's about the size of a deck of cards, you know, that kind of, and you're supposed to attach that to the outside of your backpack, and that's, that's your permit. Now, once you've got that, you go line up to catch the bus. So the, the National Park, I think around 15 years ago, banned all, all vehicle traffic except their own buses. So that's the only way to get around the buses, get around the place. And Ronnie Creek, the official start, is about seven kilometers, so it's that four or five miles from the park headquarters. So you, you get on this, it's basically a city bus, but it's driven by a park ranger, and it just goes around and around. And you get off at Ronnie Creek. No one else gets off at Ronnie Creek, because that, that's not the place everyone's trying to get to. So explain that. There's a lot of people here, I guess, who are not backpackers, of course, and they're they're here to just see the park as a day trip and staying in the accommodations in the area. Yes. So about five kilometers or let's say three miles south of Ronnie Creek is basically what's called Cradle Mountain. 
So it, it I, I guess it's a crater or being carved. It looks like a big bowl that's been carved by, I guess, a glacier. And then there's a craggy peak above it. And people, the day trippers and, the, you know, the people just there for photos and what, they'll all go to that lake, Dove Lake. That's where they're going because then you get this iconic photo of the Cradle Mountain mountain itself. I so <laughs> I, I suspect this was deliberate. Now, you as the hiker, you'll actually go past where they all are after you leave Ronnie Creek. I see. Okay, so you get on the trail and eventually you make your way to that spot. Yeah, so it's about... It's almost like a triangle. They're coming into one from one point, and you're coming in from another, and you'll meet up in this one place. I guess it's about two miles down the path from Runny Creek. So that first day, you're you're passing a lot of people who are just there for the day. Yeah, and, and there's one place where you, I guess it's 30, 40 feet, kind of like a, you got to grab onto, it's not dangerous or anything, but you kind of, with a big pack, there's handrails, chain link fence handrail kind of thing. And you're pulling yourself up. And, and there are people there that don't understand <laughs> the physics of big backpacks and just general politeness. And they want to go first. That's a bottleneck. But I got through it. And then that's about, once you get through that, you really don't see the tourists anymore. You, you're, you're, on the, you're on your way. And then you stop for the, the evening in Waterfall Valley. Yeah, so once you get up, you get up onto a plateau, and that's the plateau that you would turn off to climb up Cradle Mountain. And then, yes, and then it's probably two hours from that location, and you're going slightly down into what's called Waterfall Valley. There's a hut and uh, tent sites, um, tent platforms. And there's usually, I think, they keep a volunteer man or woman at that hut pretty much all the time. I, I guess people are shocked sometimes at what they've gotten themselves into or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and this person is part mother or father, part, you know, motivational coach and part don't kill yourself kind of thing. Perfect. And you mentioned the tent platforms. I think that's worth mentioning to people that because it's so wet in a lot of these areas that these areas next to the huts actually have platforms that are raised above where you would be, you know, yes. in the marshy areas. So you're going to mm-hmm. be fairly dry if you're able to get one of the tent platforms. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like here in the U.S. I've shared tent platforms before, you know, if it gets full. So I, I think there's a good camaraderie spirit of sharing out there. I certainly experienced it, and I would hope others do too. Yeah, that raises a, a question. Who are the people who are out there hiking? Is it people from all walks of life, all different ages, or is there a, kind of a character that you expect to see? I mean, what, who, are the, who are the other people doing the trip? I think it's everybody. So there was some young college kids on my hike. There was <laughs> there was a family of four, probably like your family, uh, with you know a son and a daughter in their teens and why. But the the mother seemed to be the one dragging them along. I didn't see anyone else enjoying themselves in that family. <laughs> <laughs> there was a there was this married young newly married couple. There was an old you know sixty five year old guy. He's like this is my tenth time through or something it was fun it, there were there were certain there was an american air force uh, helicopter rescue pilot from japan who just decided to come down for an, and try it out that's cool australia has a lot of young foreign kids come and you can get a visa to stay in the country for two years and generally what you do is you work in like fruit picking or you know some hard labor for a couple of months or get your money and then you go touristing you've got a lot of guys who are kind of young going by the seat of their pants who get a chance to get out there and do the hike. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess 
I'll mention it later, but I'll mention it now. Do not do this without a pass. The rangers will catch you, and there's a hefty fine involved. But, you know, I, I met them at one point, and I was talking to them, and I said, <laughs> I, I don't want to badmouth anyone, but they said that a lot of these, they call them, I, I wonder what they call them, you know, these young people that come to Australia to work and then tourist, go touristing, they often don't get a permit and get fined. Mm. <laughs> so, But there's a lot of those that have planned it, Oh, I forgot to say, when you're booking, the bookings in Australia open for the whole year on July 1st. Ah, okay, that's good to know. So basically, in a, in a couple of weeks, if this was a non-COVID year and you could get into the country, July 1st is when you should be looking to book, because then you'll get the pick of your time. Okay, that's good advice. All right, so let's talk about the second day. You go from Waterfall, Waterfall Valley to Windermere. That's only about, it's not a very long day. That's about seven kilometers or a little over four miles. Yeah, and I was very thankful for that. That day we had torrential rain all day. And even though I had my weather gear, wet weather gear and, you know, everything else, you just know you're going to be soaked. And I was soaked within like 15 minutes of leaving the Windermere hut. And so there's a lot of duckboard on this hike. Um, there's one small lake that you can take a side trip to, but in torrential rain, you're not going to do anything. You're just trying to cruise to the next place. Thankfully, the weather that day, even though it was rainy, it wasn't windy or cold. Otherwise, you know, that's a classic hypothermia kind of day otherwise. And I think I forgot to mention, the, the first day is only about 10 kilometers from Ronnie Creek to Waterfall Valley. So that's only about six and a half miles, a little over six miles to, to get to Waterfall Valley. Yeah. So I have 6.4 miles and, and the book says four to six hours. I think I did it in just under four. Okay. So that's, that is easily doable as a half day if you arrive, you know, by middle of the day. All right. And then from Windermere, the next day is, seems like a, a bit of a longer day to Pelion. Yes. Yes. So this is, this is one of the longest days that you've got and there's really no options to break it up. It's about 14 kilometers, almost nine miles. So, yeah, I got about 8.8 .8 miles. I did it in five hours. I guess everyone made it there by the end of the day, so it wasn't an impossible hike. That night before that day, we had the snow, and then during the day until about lunchtime, we had snow squalls. So I was cruising. You know, I certainly wasn't dawdling through that. There again is a lot of these duck boards, and... I, I got wet feet, let's say that. For the first two-thirds of the day, you're walking across a plateau, a grassy plateau, in fact, maybe even a bog, and then you're descending slightly into a river valley, and all I remember of that going down in the river valley, the trail was basically a stream of water, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that can happen. I've got a question for you. Mm-hmm. When you're in bad weather, do you prefer snow to rain? Because some people do, because it's actually a little bit easier to deal with in some ways. I do, actually. For some reason, in damp, wet weather, I've historically not drunk enough water, not hydrated properly. So I have to be really careful. You know, I have to really think about that all the time. In, in the snow weather here in New England, it's fine. I, I, I just do it naturally, so... So um, we'll talk about the next two days because you actually did the next two days that you or the next two sections that you could do in two days. Mm -hmm. You ended up doing them in one day, and that's Pelion to Kia Ora, which is about eight point two kilometers or five point mm -hmm. one miles, mm -hmm. and then from Kia Ora to Windy Ridge, which is about eight point six kilometers 
or 5.3 miles. Mm -hmm. And you put those two together. Talk about that a little bit. Yes. So Pelion is one of the locations, the hut. It's a big hut. It's, it's, It's a big modern hut. It's got, I think it sleeps like 60 or 70 people. So there's plenty of space to spread out and dry your clothes and everything. Pelion, at the actual hut location, you can head east and climb Mount Oakley. And I think that's about a four or five hour return trip. And if you did that, you would be looking back over the the northern part of the trail that you've just come across. So the next day, the first sort of, I guess, three to four miles, you're climbing up to a gap between two mountains. And I think it's about a thousand foot climb. And at the saddle, you can stop and head east or west and climb these two side trips. Now, if you head west you will climb up Tasmania's high point, the highest mountain in Tasmania, and that's called Mount Ossa. I had talked to people the day before uh, that I met at the hut when I got there, and they said they'd just come back from trying to climb Mount Ossa. Mount Ossa actually had ice on it, and I didn't have any traction, so there was no no way I was going to try and do something crazy like that. So um, that meant when I got to the saddle, halfway to Kiaora, I got to Kiora by 10 o'clock or 10.30. The weather was, you could tell, was clearing, but it wasn't going to be a sunny day. And it's like, what am I going to do here all day? I can't go up to Mount Osser. And there's only so much of my novel I can read. So I took a half an hour break and then uh, motored on through to uh, Windy Ridge. And I think I was trying to buy myself time because I was going to do a, a side trip. That was the highlight of my trip, that side trip. I don't know if it's apocryphal, but there is actually a sign at Kiora saying, beware, beware of the snakes. There's a family of snakes that lives around the hut. I did not <laughs> see. <laughs> There's a real sign. I have a photo of it. I did not see them. And I wonder if it's really just, you know, it might have been like that 20 years ago. And I don't know if it's like that now. At Kiora, I actually was, was uh, permit checked by the, the rangers. So the rangers from talking to them, they will start at the south at the bottom end and walk through the north. (laughs) And everyone they come across, you have to show your tag and you'll give them your name and they cross it off the the list. What month did you do this hike? I did this in December, December 16th. So it's close to, you know, the hottest month of the year in Australia, (laughs) (laughs) but this isn't the case. Even in December, you got snow and inclement weather. So on day five, you went Windy Ridge to Pine Valley, which is 14 kilometers or about 8.7 miles. Yes. So Windy Ridge is the second last hut before you basically leave the park. And about halfway to that exit, you turn left and head west into what's called Pine Valley. And I don't think many people go in there. I think in the hut, there were maybe five or six of us. Why do people not go in there? I think mostly because they're not even sure it's there. I mean, you're just cruising along the trail and there's a sign and a path that says Pine Valley. And I don't know, maybe at that point you want out. You've had enough. (laughs) (laughs) The hamburger and fries is is calling your name or something. I don't know, but I really enjoyed it. And it is a pine valley. Literally, you're in a pine forest. To me, the highlight of that. So I got to the hut around 1130 I had a quick lunch, and then I hiked up what's a mountain called the Acropolis. 
which is basically between the Windy Ridge Hut and where Pine Valley Hut is. So if you climb it, you actually see where you stayed the night that night, the previous night. And that day was a perfect day. Sunny, not hot, not wind, the cool breeze. It was payment for all that I've put up with already. So the climb is probably 1,500 feet. And it, it's not dangerous. It's not... It's not really even a rock scramble. There's some some sort of rocks, but not many. And the views are to die for. So you can view south, and you can view north, and you can view east. It's 360-degree views. And when I got I got to the summit probably 4 o'clock, I had it to myself. I mean, nobody else came up after me. So That's fantastic. I love when you're on a hike and you have a moment like that where you realize, oh, this is why I'm out here. Yes, and, you know, you can't pay money for this. This is why I do what I do when I hike. That's great. The next day you go from Pine Valley to Narcissus, and that's the end of the hike, right? Well, it can be. Pine Valley to Narcissus is basically the same distance as the day before, which I think is, what, eight point something miles. And I got to the hut, the Narcissus hut, around 11 a.m., now, the ferry comes three times a day. There's a morning ferry, I believe, and then there's a noon ferry, and then there's an, a late afternoon ferry. And Narcissus Hut actually has like a a radio station where you can call. I, I think it's basically the front desk at the Lake St. Clair Resort at the southern end of the lake. And you can call them and ask them if there's a spot on the boat, on the ferry. The ferry is basically a motorboat that seats maybe 20 people. So it's not a <laughs> it's not a Seattle ferry kind of thing. You know, it's not a big thing. And there was, and I guess that hamburger and fries was calling my name. And I took it. But if you don't do the, the ferry, you now have, you have a 16 kilometer, what's that, about 10 or 11, 12 mile walk along the western shore of the lake. That's a whole extra day. Yes. I guess out of the people that that I was kind of grouped with, about 50% of them went the walk around and 50% of them went the boat. I mean, the views from the boat are stunning. You're on this perfect lake. And it was another perfect day. You're on this perfect lake with a perfect day. Lake St. Clair is actually Australia's deepest lake. Now, you can't tell that in the boat, but and it looks pretty cold. I actually went for a swim in it. <laughs> it's cold. But I chose the boat. And next time for something different, I'd probably do the walk. But either's fine. Did you stay the evening after your hike before you headed back? Yes. So I was going to get picked up at 11 a.m. the next day. And like Cradle Mountain, the resort or whatever they call them at the Lake St. Clair, has all different types of accommodation. So a field in Australia is called a paddock. And uh, there's actually this field that's open. You can go camp there for free. So it goes from that to bunk beds. I went to the kind of army boot camp bunk bed one because then I could, have a, I could pay for a hot shower. <laughs> at that point, I was liking that idea but you can rent cabins all the way you know up to luxury things at the end of this hike as you look back on it to you why is this a trail worth hiking the experience i think i mean i mean i will remember to the day that i die the time i spent on top of the acropolis just by myself 
just enjoying the day. I mean, that's why you hiked. That's why I hiked. But for other people, you're in wilderness. There's no, you know, there's no pizza delivery out here. <laughs> and the National Park does a very good job of limiting the number of people on the trail. So you really don't feel crowded. You're by yourself. I was by myself, I felt, except at the evenings when you could, you know, meet in the huts and talk. And it sounds like that was a good part of the trip, too. It seems like that's often a, a highlight for a lot of people on trips that have huts, where they just have the camaraderie with talking with the other folks that are doing the same hike that you're doing. Yeah, I mean, it, for starters, we're kind of looking out for each other, you know. And as a solo hiker, if I didn't show up the next night, hopefully someone would have said something. But it's so much fun. It's entertaining to, you know, some people bring cards or whatever, or you just sit and talk. What happened on this trip that you, you didn't expect? <laughs> it was night, too. There's school groups that come along this trail, and, and they have their own sort of separate areas. So you really don't see them very much. But because of the inclement weather on the second day, they all basically turned up in the hut to eat dinner. And these were 15, 16-year-olds, I think, you know, maybe 14s. This one kid, this guy, his dad had basically bought him two pounds of Nutella, and that was, his whole, that was all he was brought to eat on the whole trip. It's probably enough calories. <laughs> oh, <laughs> make it's it plenty of it's plenty of calories and a great sugar high. But I guess the more fun part was the the chaperone slash teachers just figured it out that night, and they were aghast. <laughs> <laughs> and you're too far in. There's no turning back. Yeah, so he's got to trade Nutella for whatever he can get from anyone else. <laughs> and the, it's not the kid's fault. I mean, he has no. I mean, he's 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 a novice. Yeah. I mean, it was hilarious, but I wonder how he made it through the, the gear check at the start. I have to tell you, but by the third or fourth day, there's probably a lot of kids in his group who are thinking Nutella looks pretty darn good. <laughs> so he probably he, made some good trades later on. He was pretty popular, I think. <laughs> so what would you have done differently? That's always something that, you know, on a trip like this where there's lots of bad weather, it seems like there are things that... It might come up that you think oh, I could have done that a little differently and it would have been a little bit more enjoyable. Anything like that happen? I was pretty happy with what I did. I would love to do it again and hopefully strike really good weather and just do these side trips. Or if I did it again and the weather was not pouring with rain or, you know, it was, it looked damp or threatened, I would have still done the side trips next time, you know. Even if the weather's not great. Well, it, you know, if I consider it dangerous weather, I wouldn't do it. But, you know, rain showers, I, I, I would do it kind of thing. Okay. So if, you're, if you were to do this again, would you plan in extra days to be able to do that? How many days would you make the trip? Yeah, so there's no requirement that you complete the trip in a certain number of days. It's basically limited by how much food you can carry. So I would love to spend more time and... and and have it like a day at Windermere and a, the first day and a day at Pelion to actually just leave your pack there and go exploring these side trips. Dan, thanks for telling us about your hike. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, I'd also like to thank you for having this podcast. I mean, I think I said in my email to you, <laughs> my list of must-do hikes keeps getting longer and you're one of the people responsible. Yeah, you know, I've always said that. The more hikes I do, the more I have on my list. It never gets shorter. It always gets longer. Uh, but Dan, before before I let you go, I've got a few more questions. Okay. What is one hike or trip you've done besides this one that others shouldn't miss out on? 
Well, I think you talked about it last time, the Himalayas. Now, I did a slightly different thing to you. I, I went to, to northwestern India, to Ladakh. But you've got to go there. You've, you've got to go to the Himalayas somewhere. Your life is not complete without that. Yeah, I think I said that. I felt bad saying that, I think, on the last podcast where I said <laughs> I said something about like your resume is not complete as a hiker unless you go to the Himalayas. But I do think it feels that way once you've done it. It just feels it's so awesome and so overwhelming and just the scale of everything. You know, I've heard that Ladakh, are there quite a few lakes in that area? Because I have to say where I was in the Himalayas, there weren't that many lakes. And I think there is a difference between what it looks like in the India part of the Himalayas than the Nepal part. There are two big lakes. One actually is half owned or half claimed by China. And, and in, in Ladakh, I guess in Tibetan, a lake is called a Sao, T-S-O. Mm -hmm. So there's Pangong Sao, and then there's another one that I, I went to the other one. There's also a big river called the Indus River starts up in Ladakh. Okay. Yeah, that's on my list. That area is definitely on my list. Um, as soon as I heard that there was an area like that in India... I thought I have to go there eventually, so I hope to get there. I didn't see them, and it was kind of. I went in the summer in India, and it was the wrong season. But that's mm. snow leopard country. Yeah, yeah. Where I was too, but I think they're pretty hard to spot. <laughs> <laughs> I think one could be twenty feet from me, unless it moved, I wouldn't see it because exactly. You know. So, what is the best backpacking or hiking advice you've received? Well, I guess it's a philosophy, although it was. Climbing up Mount Kilimanjaro, every all of the porters and guides say pole pole, which is Swahili for slowly, slowly. And I, I guess I've expanded on that. When you're hiking, you've got to listen to your body. It's not a race. So some days it's great and easy, and other days you just grind it out. But pole pole. Yeah, that is good advice. You know, it's sort of the one step at a time advice. And I think that's something that I try to do. And it's and it's a it goes against my natural inclination, right? My, nat my natural inclination is to sort of even unwittingly sometimes compete with other people out there. I don't try to do it, but you feel sometimes like I should be doing whatever they're doing. I find, maybe you find this too, uh, when I go solo, I went on a solo trip just a couple of weeks ago, actually, in the Trinity Alps here in California. And I find it much easier for me to just do my own pace when I'm solo. I don't feel like it's, it's easier for me to just take it all in and realize that there's no hurry to do what I'm trying to do. Somehow it feels different with other people, but that is good advice. Thank you. I, I mean, it's kept me alive, not that I've needed it, but you've got to listen to your body. Yep. What about your favorite backcountry spot? Well, here in, the New, in New England, uh, I, I love the White Mountains, and in particular the western part of the White Mountains, and it's called the Pemigewasset Wilderness. It can get pretty crowded on Labor Day weekend, that kind of thing. But if you go during the week, you won't see a soul. For those that are really wanting to push themselves, there's a. it's basically a, a 10 mile by 10 mile square that, that you can basically ridge run the whole outside of it. And I think there's a, it's called the Pemi Goeset Loop. The Pemi Loop is what they call it. And I'm not into that kind of stuff, but you do it, and people do it in like 16 hours and that kind of thing. And I think it's rated the second hardest hike, day hike in America or something, if that matters to you. I take it easy and just enjoy myself. Do you do it as a back, uh, as an overnight trip, or is it just a long day hike? No, uh, there's uh, shelters. So in the White Mountains, there's no uh, camping outside of the designated areas, campsites. 
And so I'll st- you you stay it there. Okay. Does this area also have pretty iffy weather, or is in the summer it's fine? It can have iffy weather all the time. I mean, I guess Mount Washington is the top of is the the tallest peak in the White Mountains, and you know I've been up there on summer days, and even though it's sunny, it's still in the thirties. So it, it's layer up and wear the right clothes, and you'll be fine. All right, last question. What's the most unexpected thing that's ever happened to you while backpacking or, or hiking? Well, I have to go back to Ludduck. So I'm in a four-wheel drive, and we're driving between hiking areas that we were going to go hiking in. And I'm kind of dozing in the back seat. And there's four other, there's my guide, an Indian, and two Indian local drivers. And all of a sudden, we stop in the middle of nowhere. And, and I mean, it really is the middle of nowhere. And they pull the whole wheel apart. The front left wheel is gone. <laughs> and I'm like, what? You mean, you're not just saying take the tire off. Like, they're taking the wheel apart. Yeah, they're, they're taking the brake assembly off. And they actually unplug. This is when I started paying attention. They unplug the brake fluid. I, I'm not a mechanic, but they unplug the brake fluid hose. And just let it dangle there. And brake fluid's escaping. <laughs> and I'm like, guys, you know, isn't this important? You just can't put water in there. And then to fix what, I, I don't know what they were fixing. They used a condom, I don't know, and pantyhose. <laughs> and okay. I'm, I'm like, where did this come from? I wish I had thought about videoing on my cell phone. Because nobody believes me that it happened, really. <laughs> well, the question is, did it get fixed? We made it to the next location. I guess the scary thing was that I, while they were doing this, I actually paid attention to the tires, and they were bald almost to the point where the, the metal straps were coming out. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, but, but again, these roads are so bumpy, you don't need traction on your tires. The road has got plenty of traction. Yeah, that's a fair point. I, I felt a lot of that in Nepal on the, the dirt roads there. Well, Dan Caney, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate having you. Well, thank you very much. Thanks again to Dan Caney for coming on the show. He has proof that as a listener, if you bring me an interesting idea and you have an interesting experience, I'm happy to have you on the show to talk about the trail you've hiked. So I hope Dan and I have inspired you to hike the Overland Track. And keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. Before we preview our next episode, I want to remind you that Trails Worth Hiking listeners get a 10% discount at Outdoor Herbivore at OutdoorHerbivore.com. Or you can get great backpacking meals, meals that have plenty of calories in boil-in-a-bag packaging made from quality ingredients and that taste great. Outdoor herbivore meals are vegetarian and vegan, but as I always say, you don't have to be vegan or vegetarian to love them. They taste great no matter what. I just got back from a four-day backpacking trip where I used outdoor herbivore meals for a couple of my dinners and really enjoyed them. They're always better than the other brands that I get that I sometimes eat to supplement when I don't have enough of the outdoor herbivore meals. So definitely check them out. Use the discount code 
TWH10P, Trails Worth Hiking 10%, to get your discount on Outdoor Herbivore Backpacking Meals at OutdoorHerbivore.com. Let's talk for a moment about what will be on our next episode of Trails Worth Hiking. For our next episode, I hope you like granite. Lots of granite. We're going to tackle the most iconic feature and the best view of one of the most visited and beautiful valleys in one of America's signature national parks. Both of these highlights can be reached by grueling day hikes, and most of the people who reach them do it that way. But this isn't a podcast about day hikes. And why not take two grueling day hikes and turn them into a wonderful, actually quite leisurely, three-day backpacking trip, where you can see the highlights but still avoid the crowds? Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we go to Yosemite National Park in California and visit Half Dome and Clouds Rest. All right, so that will do it for this episode. If you have any questions or feedback on the episode or ideas for future episodes, including if you want to be a guest and talk about a trail that you've hiked, reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. So start planning your next hike. And before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening.